Mm -hmm. Welcome to the History of LASKIA one-on-one sessions. I'm Junior Francis, your host, alongside our producer and my good friend, Eric Kohler. Now, for your information, this series celebrates and aims to preserve and promote the Skia Rocksteady and Vintage Reggae scene in Southern California and beyond through insightful conversations with legends and moderated talent, including those behind the scene. Hence, whether you listen to this podcast series or watch us on YouTube, a big thank you for your support. And please, in the most begging way, remember to subscribe and tell a friend. As a matter of fact, tell many friends, as many friends as you possibly can. This is what's interesting. Now, in this scene, on this episode, rather, we welcome veteran, British singer, musician, producer, label operator, DJ, <laughs> promoter from the Trojans, Gaz, Rock and Blues, Club Records, and much, much more. This just a few of the many, many hats <laughs> that the incomparable and amazing Gaz Mayall wears. Speaking of hats. My gosh. Gaz, <laughs> welcome and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's so good to see oh you guys God. again. Yes, it, it really is. And, and, yes. and Junior and I were talking about this the other day. It was such a pleasure to meet you in person finally at the Stranger Cole show in Los Angeles in March. So, almost a year. Yeah, almost a year right, believe it or not. To yeah, date. almost a yeah. year. Which is why. Time flies, man. It's such yeah, a ball there man. with you guys and Stranger. That was such <laughs> a wonderful occasion. And, and uh, Ocean Eleven for the first yeah. time they performed in all that time. That, that was so good. That was so much talent in LA. It was a magical yes. night from start to finish. Yeah, poor Tomlin is memorable. Right, indeed, yeah. indeed, and 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 we know you get out here um every once in a while. We want to start by asking you uh, about uh your father John Mayle, who's often referred to as the Godfather of British blues. At what at what age did you realize that your father was famous? Well, and beloved by so many. Well, you know, we all came down from Manchester at the same time. Uh, my mother helped facilitate it. My dad was playing um, kind of on an amateur pub scene in Manchester and the local environs, uh, villages and towns nearby. And um, he one, well, I'll tell you the, the story how it happened if, you, if we've got enough time. Yeah, it's on this one, but it's quite a nice little story. Dick Hextall Smith, the saxophonist, he was playing with Alexis Corners Blues Syndicate in London at the time, which was the very first blues rhythm and blues band, <clears throat> and it was uh, run by Alexis Corner, who had a uh, he ran the the first rhythm and blues club in London wow. in Acton in started in 1962, and right from its inception, people would travel from as far as Newcastle, which is like coming from as far as San Francisco down wow. to London to LA or something that kind of distance the animals were formed out of that experience Eric Borden was coming down from Newcastle and you had people coming from Wales and all over and uh, uh, the Rolling Stones were formed in that very club Dick, Dick Hextall Smith the saxophonist with Alexis at the time was doing a show up in Manchester and I uh, stayed the night over I didn't have somewhere to stay and my, my dad said oh you can stay at mine and that following morning, there was this black gospel singer was coming over to jam with my dad in the morning. He had this kind of uh, harmonium, which is your pedal. It's a keyboard, your pedal, and uh, quite an old school kit, uh, like an organ, you know. And um, she was singing. And Dick heard this. He said, described like the most angelic noise. He said, what is that? And uh, he came, uh, he, 
he came downstairs expecting to see a whole choir and it was just this one lady singing with my dad playing an organ Man. and he said oh my god this is incredible mm. uh, he says you've got to come to london he told alexis about it when he got back to town alexis got in touch with him so got him a gig in london at his club and he says my god you you have to move to london because it's all kicking off. The Beatles are just arriving on the scene around that same year, yeah. uh, and all the bands from different parts of the country, but London was the capital and you had to be there to make it happen. Um, my mum said to him, said, I tell you what, she just, her great aunt Louis had died and she just come into a few quid. And she says, I don't expect to live in Manchester the rest of our lives, but I tell you what I do, <laughs> we'll move to London for one year and, and, and I'll back you up, I'll get a job, teaching whatever she was teaching pottery at the time okay. she was a sculptor's sculptress and uh, i said i'll give you one year and if if you make it in that year we'll stay and he made it in that year oh my goodness he was working so, so what, what year would that have been now 1963 mm -hmm. and so from there some of his musicians couldn't handle london they moved back to manchester he got new guys within a year or so he's got people like eric clapton playing in the band <laughs> and they just took off he didn't really get famous as such uh on the mainstream ever in a sense but you know when we were kids you know like it was all about the beatles the stones and the charts yeah. they were all friends of my family so we used to see them and like we we're allowed to stay up to see what paul mccartney's coming over because they, but they all yeah. loved and respected your father. Yeah, and they were all part of the same scene, you know. And, and my mother, my dad was less sociable. He was just driven and locked into his career. But my mother, you know, she was more sociable than so extended the kind of family kind of friends scene. So she was really good. Really, her best friend was Marion Faithful. So they would, oh my goodness, tag her and be around every other day. And <laughs> and we had all kinds of people in the, the living room. Was a was a was a rehearsal room as well for the band. So. <laughs> What an experience, though. There was there was a lot going on, but you know, if I went to school, nobody had heard of my dad. You know, yeah. the primary school, they'd heard it when Jimi Hendrix arrived in London. All of a sudden, he's uh, 1966. All of a sudden, he's on the TV. Right. Hey, Joe, and everyone's heard of him all of a sudden overnight, but still, no one's heard of my dad. Yeah, which was great. So that I kind of it was anonymity, and I felt that I was kind of part of an underground scene, and and I was quite comfortable with that. Alexis Corner remained on the underground scene. My dad always stayed on the underground scene. They all did well. And uh, I've always been content. Uh, uh, Chris Blackwell from Island Records once said to me, so what do you want, what do you want to do with your career? He said, like, you, you want to be um, a DJ? You want to be a club runner? You want to be a producer? You want to be a band leader? What, what, what is it you want? You know, you should pick one really and then specialize How old in were that. you then? How old were you? This is this is in the in the late eighties. So I was all, already got the club and the band and the record label going by then, and and I said to Chris, I said, look, I, I want to do the whole lot of them, the whole spectrum. Yeah, I'm like like a musical, I, I pick. <laughs> yeah, I said I'm like a musical farmer. I've got all these different fields around me, like a musical wheel, spokes going off every direction, but it keeps turning, and I like to be in the hub of it. And and have all these fields in opera, operation, and every now and again you leave one field fallow for a year. So you know that's not bringing in the money then. You let it go wild for a bit, but at the same same time you keep you keep the whole thing as one big happy farm. Yeah, that's a great analogy. <laughs> Musical farmer, that's me. <laughs> right. So, what was your first exposure to uh, Jamaican music? 
Uh, quite an easy one to say that because it would have been the 60s as a kid when all of a sudden the kids down the down the street and certain friends of mine from 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 school would be like when like 10 11 years old um and so was like that, that manchester or london oh no i moved to london in 1963 so we're talking like about four years later now in, in 1967 okay. when uh 007 was in the charts and then hmm. the following year really kicked in 1968 Every youth club in my area where the kids would go and hang out, um, there'd be non-stop, like today you call it boss reggae or skinhead reggae, but we just called it reggae then. That was a new word. Right, right. We weren't even familiar with the word ska or bluebeat because we were just that slightly different age. We, we'd seen My Boy Lollipop on the, on the TV a couple of years before and got excited about that, but that was just a novelty thing and it didn't really reach our world. But right. by 68... And I remember seeing this kid that I knew walking down the street towards me with a two-tone suit and uh, and shades and loafers, and he looked so shiny and slick. And I'm like, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> that, that is the that's the future. Yeah. And, yes. and I got a, there's my family dragging us around to festivals <laughs> and everyone with long hair now and stuff. You know, I was like, no, 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 no. I want to be slick like that. Yeah. And, and then. And then so the, you go to the youth club and you just and it mech and Israelites and every other record you can imagine for the next couple of years whilst I was still down in, in southeast London before I moved to Notting Hill where I remain to this day. And that that the skinhead thing kind of took over. At first it was a slick thing that everyone was excited about. I think it was a continuation from the mod scene, really. The mod scene splintered into two. It went one the hippie side, and okay. then one the uh, the the skinhead side. Oh, interesting! And so you had like the kind of half of the kids were in went one direction, the other half went the other. So, and so, I was really so. So you mean, for instance, musically and and stylistically and scene wise? So like, so so part of the part of the mods that were into some of like the the soul and the, and the rock, so to speak, right, continued on to enjoy and to embrace like skinhead reggae, and then some went more uh, into like you said, like the hippie side of things. Yeah, well, I I I could. I mean, it's hard because I was a kid to really kind of work it out then, but I worked it out since. Right. You know, taken to a lot of shows, and my dad's shows and things in in clubs. We were allowed to go to the clubs and things like um, Flamingo, mm -hmm. Whiskey, Whiskey a Go Go, and uh, the Marquee. Okay, uh, we'd be in the dressing room, and like we we wouldn't be that old, and they'd let us in there because my dad was playing. <laughs> and you, and I'd notice, you know, kind of the fashions were. If I look back at like what my dad was wearing at the time. At first, it was kind of short hair. Sometimes they came out the beatnik scene and kind of like sure. a bit of a beard and and uh, kind of slick. Then it was all mods coming to his shows because they were into the blues and rhythm and right, blues. Okay. You know, it was, it was a kind of a, a it was connected to the soul scene, and everyone was all the clubs my dad was playing and being he was playing R and B. Uh, all those clubs were 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 the same uh, same clubs and same audience who were coming to see. Little Stevie Wonder when he first came okay, over, and yeah. Eddie Floyd, and kind of uh, Don Covey, and Otis Redding, um, all these all stars who were coming over to play. Oh. That it was the same audience pretty much. So if you look at old photos of my dad 
from like the early 60s, you'll see a real like hardcore kind of mod scene there. Yeah. And then, and then my dad kind of, within a few years, a lot of the musicians ended up sort of getting it, going more in the direction of rock music. Okay. Which yeah, was yeah. a bit more like the white side that wasn't going pop, but was going kind of yes. more creative and creating their own scene. But there, there again, the, the people who were into like the black scene and, and soul music. Right. They were really, there were so many Jamaican kids growing up in London whose parents had moved there 10 years or 15 years before or 20 years before now that were all coming up and all mixing with us a lot. And uh, they, they were bringing the reggae over from Jamaica. Uh, we didn't really clock like the Trinidadian stuff then, the Calypso that was big in the 50s. Fifties, <laughs> but the reggae had really become a big thing because that was built on the ska scene. Certainly. That was part of the mod scene, right? So I was kind of just connected, brought, raised up in two camps at the same time. Originally, the mod camp, if you like, and then, yeah. and then, one foot in the the rock world <laughs> and fest, big festivals and right. stuff, and then the other foot in the kind of the reggae world. Yeah. You frequently mentioned the mad scene. What has become of the mad scene? Well, it kind of had a, a, a revival uh, at the same time as the two-tone uh, ska reggae revival. So in the late 70s, when I had my little shop, I'd been in Wales for a little while doing antiques and kind of dropped out. And then I moved back to London when I was 20 and opened up a shop in Kensington Market. It was like an indoor street oh, market on yeah. three floors. It doesn't exist anymore, but... All the kids from all over London used to kind of hang out there all week long, play truant from school, and uh, <clears throat> and we had our own <clears throat> non-step non-stop hype for about a year and a half, two years. And during that time, um, the the punk scene that kind of came and went almost in a flash. So you had the tail end of the punk scene hanging out down there, and then you had the the a lot of the mod scene with the particularly. Um, kind of exploded with that film Quadrophenia. Yes, indeed. And then the, the reggae thing reignited and Scar scene reignited with the two-tone, advent of two-tone in May 79. Mm -hmm. That's when it really kicked in and hit the, when it when Gangster's uh, Al Capone went straight to the top of the charts. And then it was like that, non, that dance craze. And like in my little shop, I've got like mods, rockabillies, um, Teddy boys, skinheads, right. rude boys, all of us lot, we consider ourselves rude boys. Right. Now you use the word rude boy and, and you know, that might be interpreted by the kids of today in London as being kind of like, they're like kind of gangster style thing. Um, probably more related to sort of hip hop and that kind of world now. Yeah. It's rude boy. Okay. Now the rude boys is not a fashion that we've called like that 60s style rude boy thing. Right. But now, but so now it it might kind of have connotations of aggression and kind of you know kind of like bit fly and kind of like okay carrying yeah. it toward yeah. up and the rest of it. But you know, in a way, that that's what the rude boy had elements of that in the sixties. You know, the rebels Indeed. of the day, right? You know, wearing all the continental continental fashion. Now they're wearing American hip hop fashion. Right, right. So, so guys, um, at what point 
Uh, did you realize that the UK was home to a plethora of Jamaican expats, you know, uh, who are around, you know, since the birth of Scott, because a number of them were living right in, in the UK. Yeah. Well, in, in my primary school days, Southeast London, uh, by the time I had about 10 and 11, I was really heavily into football and then looking for the nearest football grounds to go there. And by that time, you know, all those those chart topping Trojan hits were were at every football ground blaring really loudly. And that was the scene. And uh, there was a, a lot of the, the skinhead scene. We were going to all the football matches, particularly. Uh, well, my team was always Man United. So when they played in London, I'd go to see them whatever place they were play the place they were. Chelsea was probably like the the heart and soul of the birth of like the whole skinhead scene. And there, I never never seen so many skinheads in all my born days. Interesting. Uh, Chelsea in 69. You know, it was almost like three quarters of the 50,000 uh, uh, crowd going to watch the football with skinheads, you know. Wow. Well, <laughs> and, 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 and and they had something a lot of the slick. So in 1970, when I moved to to Holland Park School and to Notting Hill, where Notting Hill and Brixham are the two areas where most of the Jamaicans gravitated to uh, in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And uh, there's there's a lot of people there. So Southeast London, there weren't so many. So my primary school, there was probably only a, a couple of black kids there. And uh, and and my brother, I've got one adopted brother, Ben, who in 1965, he was born and, and my mother was kind of like two minds about having another kid. And um, my dad really wanted more, more uh, another kid. And so uh, um, somebody said to her, well, you know, black kids are the only people who are not getting adopted because mm -hmm. the black... Uh, parents uh families are having enough already they don't want they can't feed an extra mouth mm -hmm. so they're not taking extra in and so particularly black males are just going through foster homes and if they come up for adoption no one wants them wow. so they uh my uh, um, mum's uh, friend who was a nurse at the time said oh Look, there's this kid here. It'd be such a shame, you know. He's such a sweet. He's just been born. He's he's like a few days old, and he's got no chance. And you want a kid? Why don't you just come down and have a look at him down in the in the hospital? And she went round. They said the the mother was out of wedlock. She was uh, like really dark Indian. Her dad was African. He was at law or something. Her family wouldn't allow the baby to. Uh, in the as, take it on in the family. It was different days in the 1960s, 65. Sure. And also the, the 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 civil rights movement was massive at that time and really carrying weights in in the UK, yeah. particularly in the in the bigger urban centres like the capital of London. So the um uh, uh and my father obviously playing you know based based his whole music on uh, on black sort of roots music. And I thought, well, you know, well, maybe we should do our bit for the world and have go and have a look at this baby and weigh it up. And the second my mum saw him and he smiled and sat mm -hmm. on her lap, she's like, all right, okay, well, 
I don't want to go through like you know mi any more miscarriages or kind of like uh, uh, she had one uh, she was going to have twins at one one point and um, one died in in childbirth and she thought, so she was really put off so she'd been like you know a couple of three years without having a kid and we had three at the time me my brother Jason and my sister and then so in 1965 all of a sudden. 10 days old, sitting them on, on my lap at home, meet your new brother. <laughs> so <laughs> I've grown up with like a, you know, a jet black brother really? all my life. And you know, I don't see, I don't say, oh, well, and when my mother remarried later and she had two more kids, I, I don't say, oh, well, he's half a brother or he's he's a bit of a brother. Or you're either my family, you carry mm -hmm. my surname, grown up with you since birth, helped change the nappies and clean up the toys at the end of the day and everything. And, you know, so like family is family. Mm -hmm. So I've grown up of feeling sort of like uh, that I can't see the difference between black and white. It's like people is people. But in the in the early 60s, Southeast London, where, he, where we were living then, uh, there's very few black people that I really noticed, you know, the majority was white. And when we moved to Notting Hill, I, I was blown away. I went to the first day at, at Holland Park School and uh, it was like, I was a big fish in the little pond back in Southeast London. Moved to to Notting Hill to a school of 2000 kids, a comprehensive school. And yeah, every color and background and type of people, rich, poor, black, white, and everything in between. And they just, abolished, they just abolished the school uniform at the time. So all the kids were all dressed up in their most outrageous fineries, sure. whatever. So you had every type, you know, 1970, you got the skinheads, you got the hippies, you got every kind of strata society. Right. You know, there's posh kids mixing, mixing with <laughs> Barra Boys kids. And it, it was a really interesting time. But I'd say there was a massive amount of black kids there. And they, they were all like into the music and... And um, we we had sound systems set up in our playground sometimes. Oh my goodness! Non-stop <laughs> reggae. Non-stop reggae. That's amazing. <laughs> wow! So yeah. so that so it really struck home, and then that is the area where the, the our carnival started as well. And it, mm. it already had it made inroads there, and you had lots lots of clubs in the area. All the Shabins were in Notting Hill. So I've landed now right bang smack in the middle of kind of carnival country. Indeed. And, right. and we're going to we're going to talk about the carnival in a few minutes. But the first um, talk about the exposure um, and impact that two tone music uh, and those bands had on your life. Well, it was funny because uh, the first time we got there, one of the, the, the newspapers that kids used to read. Now everything's online. But information we used to get from from two music papers that have been popular since like the 40s and 50s. Okay. Now they were dealing with kind of in the 60s. They were really there was two big ones, uh, the um, Melody Maker and New yeah. Musical Express, which right. later became known and, as the and, NME. And w, right? And um, NME. Yeah. NME. Yeah. yeah. There you go. So those two papers. So when uh, Gangsters by uh, the specials came out special aka on two time that all of a sudden you've got a big article front page articles in both the two main papers where something that stood out that nobody was looking like that at all everyone's like i got longish hair 
the black kids have got they remember the jerry curls and stuff and it was all looking like a kind of the soul scene had gone one direction and and kind of got hip the whole world seems to have got hippified and gone casual and all of a sudden all these kids on the on the front page of the music papers slick as hell wearing suits <laughs> and looking just like but young and slick and looking fantastic and yeah. then you see them the listen to music and say that's the music that we're playing down i had a a little dance-set record player in my shop in Kenmarket in 78, 79. And we were playing all that music. So old records, I took them all from my house and my Bluebee Scar and Reggae collection and Soul. And all the kids who were playing truant all day long, they could hang out in the shop all day long, try and on clothes and <laughs> put on records. And when that came out, we were all dressed like that. <laughs> we're dressing like that and we were hair mate of mine was a hairdresser and he'd open up the salon downstairs and we're all getting our hair cut for nothing and styled in different ways and things but we when that the specials hit the scene we're like hang on right like us they're playing how the music that we're into they're dressing like we're what what yeah. we look like yeah so that's that's wonderful and it really stood out up until then we felt like like we were just a, a little kind of clique on our own you know and uh, and then it suddenly just smashed the whole yeah. country wide open. The whole world sort of took note and got into that. And uh, within a year, I've opened my club and not doing a shop anymore because I couldn't source any of the secondhand vintage clothes that I was selling in the shop to all these kids. All the musicians, those bands, used to come to Ken Market, buying clothes off me. The kids were buying the clothes off me. And then I just couldn't get enough clothes, so uh, I didn't want to. Re I didn't want to manufacture them and start getting into that. And then I just took the party from Ken Market and just moved to West End and started running my nights. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I want to step back for a minute. Uh, when did you start collecting records? At one point, you said, "I'm going to become a collector." There's a need and a necessity to own these. Yeah, I think it was just basically a voyage of discovery and it took many, many years before I even recognised it as looking like a collection or becoming a collection or regarding myself in any way as a collector of anything. But I definitely did become a collector at one point. But I think I first started um, getting records from uh, moving to from southeast London to Notting Hill because we got the famous Portobello street market. It's like a flea market. Okay. Like what you call a swap meet. It's very similar to that. Loads of stalls, but lining down a, a, a long road and uh, people selling bric-a-brac and all kinds of stuff. And uh, you've got to think like, like in 1971, 72, 73, when secondhand stuff is coming out, people having to clear out, and they don't want their old records, the music has changed or someone's died and they're just like, all oh, right, don't want that anymore. And they throw out their old clothes, or their old records. You buy a whole box of records like like so right. for like for a pound or something, you know, a couple of dollars. And uh, you get home and it's like, oh, what's this? Ah, oh, Prince Buster on a label called Blue Beats. And like, hang on. He's the famous Prince Buster that we were all that that was X-rated from that song Big Five. We all knew from like Skinner days. Right. And uh, and what's this one? Blue beat? Well, let's hang on. My dad's into blues. What do you mean blue beat? And so I, I put them on a deck, and then I discovered Scar, and uh, blue beat and Scar, and, and realized that all of these massive reggae legends that were like chart toppers, 
uh, started with Scar. So then I'm like, what is Scar? So this is probably, you know, I'm like 12, 13 years old then. And uh, just buying as many as I could to find out more and more of these. I really got hooked on the sound. And as the kids were getting, the, the richer kids were more getting into like the more and more rock and just at the dawn or the birth of, of uh, heavy rock turning to metal and that. So Black Sabbath, Sabbath just coming on the scene, Deep Purple and things like that. Jimi Hendrix had just died. And for me, the whole, that, that world was just falling apart and gone too far in the direction that I was totally no longer interested in. And mm -hmm. so now the pop of this time and Gary Glitter, David Bowie didn't appeal to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I just wasn't interested in anything that was seemed to be current at the time. And now I've gone down the market and I've just, I'm on a voyage of discovery to find out more and more about Jamaican mis music and got more and more into rock and roll and find out it's coming from rhythm and blues. And my dad was brought me up playing all the slow stuff. So if you buy these old R&B records, my dad was playing like the, the ballad. Yeah. But on the other side, that's the stuff that I was really interested in. Muddy Waters once said a yeah. song before he died called uh, The Blues Had a Baby and the name of the baby rock and roll. Yes, now, yeah, I yeah. fell in love with rock and roll and rhythm and blues, the jumps, yeah. the stuff you can <laughs> dance to, because I was a dancer. My mm -hmm. dad never danced, but I really loved dancing. Then, you know, we all would dance into reggae and then the rhythm and blues. When I found out that the scar, the reggae came out of scar and scar came out of rhythm and blues, I was like, ah, oh, bingo. It all makes sense. <laughs> One big happy family tree. Absolutely. <laughs> so essentially, you started collecting everything with focus on ska. Yeah, but you know, RB too, you know, a big R &B. collection of blues and rhythm and blues and things. But I mean, then, you had relatively deep pocket. We collected everything. That, that's a good question because I was just coming up to that. See, the, the problem was, even though I loved soul music and everything too, and a lot of stuff that the mods were into, um, a lot of those records were worth a lot more money. And they were already going for big bucks. And it was very hard. For, I thought, well, if I've got 10 pounds on me, what am I going to invest in? What, when I go to a record shop looking for things and going through everything, oh, can you play this, please? Can you play that? How much is that? Oh, that's 30 pounds. Oh, well, I'll come back for that another time. They weren't doing many reissues in those days either. So, you know, I thought, oh, well, I love that bit. I'll have to wait. Well, what can I get for my money? And at the time, no one seemed to be interested in Jamaican music. So I was getting that dirt cheap. I was, I was, and I was traveling for it as well. If I caught wind and heard that there was a shop with like old stock from 10 years ago, like, you know, it's 1973 and you're buying something that's 10 years old. You're buying something from 1960. You know, and stuff like was five yeah. years or just six years. They couldn't sell it anymore. No one was interested, but I was. So well, I was buying tons of it. Tons so of it. you had that vision even at that early age. Yeah, I just truly believe that one day all that music was just as worthy and just will be just as valuable as, as the soul stuff Indeed. or whatever else was going for the big money then. Right. I thought one day, so I just like, what can I afford? What can I get the most of? And I'd say maybe buy a kind of like a, an album with R&B stuff on it, an album with soul stuff on it. But I go out and buy single after single after single of, of all the Jamaican gear. So I built up a really big scar collection. And then there was stuff I, I'd like, I'd go out there and I'd end up getting home and think, oh, I've already got a copy of that. I've got a copy of that. So then I, I met a, a guy, an old guy who 
was a real collector and he <coughs> managed to get a big proper collector of the Jamaica music and, and he started publishing these books hand hand printed of uh, he'd got hold of all the catalogues of all the major uh independent labels all the important most important independent studio one. island blue mm. studio one all of the jamaican labels that, that were issued in the uk in the 60s and early 70s and and so i've got that and i think oh my god i've just got i've just hit the tip of the iceberg and I thought, <laughs> just now, well if i've heard this and and this bit is that good there's this whole area that I've got to get. So then I just went in earnest and looking to try and find every single record that ever came out of Jamaica in the 60s. Mm. And I got close to it. Deep. Yeah, I got a close to, to getting them all at one point. And then, and, and then you'd still the odd one would surface where they didn't get released or something. Sure. I even had a lot of unreleased stuff because then I'm, as I'm getting involved in like, clubs and things and made friends with Prince Buster and Duke V and various other like DJs and artists and they were like saddling me up with music and pointing me in the right direction and filling in some gaps uh, and it got to the point where the voyage of discovery got to the point where I've heard or heard nearly all or enough of it to basically I've got the main bulk of it now in my mind and there's only so much room it can have. And then they started reissuing them as it gets more and more popular. And then when I hit a bad run, I've got no money. And, you know, I've still got to pay my bills. I let a few things go and don't mind playing the reissue of it and stuff. Yeah. But by and large, I've still got a fantastic collection. I bet, I bet. So so uh, let's talk about the launch of uh, uh, your Rock and Blues Club. Uh, how did that come about and what year? Uh, 1980 was the year I started it in July. I'd had uh, I had my shop going as I mentioned uh, oh. sometime then, year and a half, nearly two years, and uh, um, I was down the West End and I popped into a club. Some friends were um, doing a night at Gossips, where I end up doing my night for 14 years in that venue. Uh, I'd gone down there because the DJ, this gay guy, was into uh, rock steady and early reggae and a bit of ska, but particularly more into like soul and that. And Alex, I can't remember his surname, but he used to come down my shop and he'd been to a night that I'd done in Oxford Street called the Two Tone Night mm -hmm. with a, a promoter who used to put on punk, punk things. Alex, uh, Alex. Chawoski, um, he had the vortex and ma uh, major part. Of, he was a major part of the punk scene, putting on all the early punk bands a few years before. So anyway, a couple of years before. Now he realised the big thing was two times. So he opened the club in Oxford Street, doing that, and it only lasted about three weeks. But all of us kids from Ken Market went down there, and I was DJing there the first the first three nights until. There was a massive fight erupted and the place got closed down. Wow. And so that was like, a, that was in 1979, September 79. So a few months later, when, the, when this, um, this, this gay friend of mine was doing this, this, this night, there was virtually no one in the building. I came there to give him some support. I went there with a couple of mates. I was looking around. I liked the music. Uh, there was hardly anyone there and no one on the dance floor except for two 
simply unattractive fat birds, if I'm allowed to call them that. And uh, it was like, oh, Alex, man, you got this great club. Um, shame there's no people anyway. So what kind of music was being played? I was playing Rocksteady and Scar and all the oh. stuff I'd be playing at the two-time club. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, but he just didn't have access to any people. He just didn't have a following. He didn't have mm. any ground base of, of, of who to bring there. And because he was gay, probably most of his contemporaries, most of the gay scene, they were all into a completely different like right. bang, sort of like house type right. music, a completely different wavelength of, of musically and so he just he couldn't get any people there he loved the music he was a fan but he was just on his own <laughs> with like two or three people there and he just couldn't get the word out and and so it lasted that just that one night and I just happened to be there and as I'm leaving the manager said oh I suppose you could do any better I said well, anyone could you're up you're up for the challenge they said here's 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 my phone numbers uh call me and you can you can do every thursday night because this guy's he's gone and uh and we've got the thursday night open and and if you want to do it you know 60 40 we 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 take 60 percent and you take 40 of the door and then we take oh. the bar anyway so i called him back two weeks later after i've been putting the word out and saying, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And everyone said, do it, do it, do it. That's do right. It. So I called him back and I said, 50-50 and you're on. So we opened on the the 2nd of July, uh, 2nd or 3rd of July, uh, 1980. Wow. And we, I've got uh, a friend in Portobello was doing, we ran a badge business. He printed on like a piece of paper and then he stamped the badges into that. So the, the sheets of paper he did like in tricolor, a bit like the Blues Brothers uh, colors. Uh, blue, uh, my, my color scheme was like rather than red, gold and green, it was I ended up being red, yellow and blue. Uh, the primary colors that all other colors come from. But in this instance, he did this kind of gray, uh, green fading into yellow, fading into, into red as a background. And we printed all the badges on that. But and also, this is like this is like what, what's right behind you, right? Uh, that's the logo. No, if um, I'll run and get you the poster. Can you can you wait one second? Sure. Yes, it's, uh, it's hanging on the wall right here. Yes, there you so, go. Real time. Second. We're gonna do a little show and tell talking to Gaz Mail. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Incomparable. <laughs> Yeah. Right. This this is the original. Oh, all right. Uh, wow. Okay. The green run into the yellow. Into yeah. The red. Mm. Very cool. So we printed. I just scribbled on it, and he, he copied a load of those. And the background, we stamped all the the badges, guys, Rocky Blues badges, and just gave them away free at the door on the opening night. And hundreds of people turn up on the opening night. We put these flyers up all around Notting Hill, Camden, <laughs> Kings Road. And that was it. The place was packed. And the owner, it was the only black-owned club in the whole of central London at the time. And Vince Howard, who looked like a cross between Muhammad Ali and and uh, and James Brown, said to me at the end of the night, he said, he was Jamaican, he said, uh, Gary, that's what he called me, Gary, Gary, just believe me, this night will last three years. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, three, I was 22. I was like, <laughs> couldn't imagine what three years looked like. Right. I thought, <laughs> I can't picture that, but I do, but at least I know that I'm clear on the first three weeks are going to be all right. But yeah. 
And it's still, uh, you, you kept it going for over four decades. Yeah, well, you know, the, the second wow. week is usually because anyone can have a big party on the first night. Sure, but okay. the second week is 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 how you know if it's going to work or not because everyone made it on the first night, right? And the second the second week, then you know I was surprised. It was really busy. It wasn't quite as busy as the first night, but it was packed still. And then the third week, it was busy as as busy as the first night, right. and then it just continued straight the way through. And, and I'm doing it 43 years later. 43, 43 years, incredible. Yeah, it'll be 44 this summer. Mm -hmm. And how is it now? How is business now? Packed, absolutely <laughs> rammed. You know, and and what's yeah. lovely about so what it? Do you have is turntable, a live band, or what, or both? I, I always put a live band on on every Thursday. Feature a live band, and we have our regular DJs. And the, the DJs, the the band plays at the same level, uh, sound wise, as the DJs, the records, mm -hmm. and uh, for the last. 28 yeah or however long it's been since I left Gossips when that was closing and I moved to the new the the new venue which is just as old as Gossips was it's another basement dive just around that same area one street away and that that's been going from 1960 still got the same owner he's 87 now sweetie of Sam Moritz wow. and he's still so there has every any of the, uh, Southern California bands passed through your club yeah, we've got a few. We've got we, we've uh, we've had bands from all over the world, Japan, America. Um, I meant the local bands here. Yeah, we've got loads of bands in in the UK. And uh, yeah, every week I choose a different. I have a different band, feature one band every week. Rarely have two. Sometimes it's a double bill, but usually just one band is plenty, because it's all about like coming down to dance and the stage is small so you can't have tons of gear knocking around there's no dressing room people changing the cloakroom mm -hmm. everyone's mingling with everyone else and uh yeah so it it's it's been a huge success but unexpectedly and it's still going strong to this day what i was going to say what's really lovely about it is that generations of youth have been coming there because unlike the states where you've got to be 21 to go into a bar right. or to a club here it's 18. Oh, okay right so and when i first uh, so now i'd say that 50 uh, uh, at least 50 percent of of the people who come through the door on any given thursday night uh under 25 mm. and that's so you and usually probably the majority will be closer to 18 than 25 right and then the other 50% age from 25 to my age, I'm 66 now. So and, and uh, for bands from California who are coming through, if they want to work at the club, they have to uh, contact me or you? Either. We've got one coming up soon. Uh, Stop the Presses. Oh, yeah. Have you heard yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> from, from the East Coast somewhere. Yeah. Right. Well, they're, they're coming over soon and they've they've booked a date with me for sometime in april i think they're nice. doing a show in april nice. yeah. they're doing i think their first their first european tour so they wanted to play down yeah, the road yeah. you know fishbone did their their uh one of their first shows in london at my place yeah. they wow. did their first ever show at a place called dingles in camden okay. and on that same night because they, they my brother jason lived in la for about seven years yeah and he was friends with them when they were all just coming out of school and saw their first gigs and stuff when they were still like a kids band and uh so when they were coming to london 
uh, he caught wind of it, they called him and, he, and so he went to Dingwalls to see them and it was a Thursday night and they came down to my club that same night afterwards and I had an all-girls ska band called the Deltones playing then oh, yes, and they borrowed the Deltones instruments and did a whole set for us on the stage. <laughs> but uh, rest assured you're going to get a lot of calls from bands from Los Angeles coming through. Excellent. Look forward oh, to it. Yeah. Bring it on. Yeah. More than welcome. Bring it on. So, so guys, speaking of groups, let's talk about the formation of your group uh, circa 86 with the Trojans. Let's talk about how that came about and and why you 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 honed in on, on a style that's 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 often called uh right like Gaelic ska, right? <laughs> okay, yeah, or Celtic ska. Okay, so in the early 80s. I met a guy called Big J Monkady who was busking in Portobello Road. Uh, would have been like 1981, 82, 82. And uh, he was a big guy for, with gold teeth from New Orleans who uh, talked very, very loudly and seemed to repeat everything he said. Okay. And it was only when I went to New Orleans and got on one of the horse and buggies and realize because by day he was he was taking people around on the, the horse and buggy rides around New Orleans, the tourists and that. And by night he was singing blues in, in the bars. <laughs> he was a harmonica and uh, player and singer and really, really good in like that real Chicago style. Um, anyway, so he'd be talking and, and what I realized why he repeated himself and talked so loud is because on the horse and buggies, every time a car goes by, the guy who's leaning around and telling you, oh, this place over there and that place over here, and this is where such and such happened. And, and it, you can't hear, what? And so you'd have to repeat everything twice and talk really loudly over the noise of the traffic. So that was Big J, but anyway, he was wonderful. And and we were jamming and uh, someone said, oh, you've got to go down to that club. So he came down to my club and then he had, then we met him in the market when he was busking afterwards and a couple of days later. and. And uh, we all hung out. We came around to a friend's house by the Bella and uh, we were just jamming. I was playing piano. He said, yes. And he looked at everyone in the room and said, that's the man I want to play piano, my band in England. So uh, next thing you know, we formed a band with just all our mates. Right. And we did some shows uh, backing him uh, mainly but then I was also using it as an uh, as a, a vehicle to exercise my songs because I was writing a lot of songs I'd started writing poetry when I was living in the mountains in Wales in my greenhouse period before I'd come back to London okay. well, and my dropout time you know antique dealing that but I taught myself to play piano there and uh, with all these antique pianos and harmoniums and then was writing a lot of poetry and writing a lot of songs and, but I never really pictured I'd ever get in a band. It was more like kind of a little sideline hobby that all the kids were playing one instrument or another. We were always jamming. And uh, next thing you know, I'm in a band. And then he went off on his his route, Big J. And then I ended up with the band and called them Gaz's Rebel Blues Rockers with a nod to the club. Um, we, we did quite a lot of shows and I kind of honed my craft with that with that band and we split up just on the eve of our very first single ever coming out oh, wow. it was trigger, ha trigger happy a scar a scar side on one side and a and a blues like a hoochie coochie man style thing called aggravation station about uh, about uh stop and search and police sort of aggression and stuff 
So uh, that was like my uh, cutting the cloth of, of my trade as, as the musician I became later. And that kind of crashed and burned and nose, took a nosedive. And in that period, the next three years until the Trojan started, I was concentrating on the club, promoting other bands and starting my record label and, and managing Potato Five mm -hmm. and getting Laurel Aitken out of the woodwork and getting him on the stage and bands like the Pioneers that people hadn't heard of for like 10 years and getting them back on the scene. Delroy Wilson, Alton Ellis, Oh my uh, Prince Buster, and then through that through that time, um, I was still jamming a lot. But I thought I won't start my new band until I get the right people. And then things all kind of configured. And in the tail end of 1986, we started rehearsing and came up with a sound. But I was I was also always a big fan of Irish music, Scots and Irish music, Gaelic music, Celtic music. And having lived in Wales, which is part of the Celtic fringe, and having lots of time to really absorb that kind of ancient sort of country, our sort of British country her heritage, which isn't like the country in Western in, in the States, it's like real kind of Cayley music and yeah. the sound of uh, old time Ireland. And so I grew up with that and bands like the, the well, the Dubliners were really big in the mid 60s with us. And we had an Irish lodger and he really turned me on to all that music and used to take me to see the Dubliners. I became a big fan of like traditional Irish music. And my best friend down the road, Paul Crowley, took me to Ireland in 1966 with his family. We lived, stayed on a farm where there was no bathroom and the bath only came out once every two weeks. And everyone had to take turns in the kitchen in the tub with filling, topping it up with hot water. And it was like, I really got into that Irish thing. So when, by the time uh, the Trojans were forming, I was just wondering if there's a way I could fuse two together, ska and reggae with mm -hmm. that and, and realise that, that uh, through studying the history of Jamaica and that, a lot of, um, a lot of their music was the same uh, chord changes and the same kind of framework and tempos as, as Irish music. And, and it was just like a, a, not only a clear, easy marriage and connect, but a lot of Jamaican history came out of Irish and Scots music anyway, because at the time when um, slavery was abolished by the British, that was like 1824, way before the United States. And so we had all the plantation uh, in the colonies, like uh, Jamaica was a British colony at the time. And people would be working in that slave labor in the plantations, the sugar plantations, didn't want to work in that anymore. I mean, some did, but now we had to start paying people and uh they there was you still had the sugar orders to meet because sugar was massive in the uk in, in the 19th century and it was very popular and so they advertised for people to go from the uk and said they said to the scots and irish you will have a whole plot of land for life a house and land if you work in a plantation, you have you can grow your own food out there and have a, a house and a, and, a, and a job for life and a and and land for life and a house for life. So, about they reckon about two hundred thousand, uh, mainly Irish, because the Scots ended up going up to Canada, and the Irish, where if the ones that didn't go to Ellis Island, New York, they went down to Jamaica and took up the uh, took up the their posts there and so you had so much of that culture already embedded in the roots of 
that. And you know, with, there was Irish, the British enslaved, the 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 English enslaved Irish people. There was white slaves from oh. Ireland in the 1600s. Wow, right. And uh, so they had a common heritage and they were being evicted from their lands, either from plague uh, or pestilence and particularly starvation, which was kind of forced on them because all the crops in Ireland, they were sending, when there was a, a drought and, and, and a blight on the potatoes and things, they were sending all the food that they were growing there to England and to sell abroad for money and letting the people starve there. In, in so they, they were leaving and, and then the land in Scotland, they were carving up the land and putting sheep on it and getting rid of all the people evicting them for the land. So the, you had like a huge amount of the Celtic fringe, as we call it, the, the far west and the far north of the British Isles and Ireland were, had, you know, were starving and they all fled to the States and to the Caribbean. And uh, and so that's why you got that part of the story. So his, his story was just, just came straight out of that, really. Yes, sir. Interestingly enough. Wow. So uh, I want to take you back to the uh, the Trojans, right? Yeah. You recorded with uh, some of the biggest names in the early Skia and uh, Skia Rocksteady fraternity, uh, Prince Buster, Rico, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, some other ones. But bring yeah, us up. Yeah. Ten, what, was ten, like, ten, what was it like working with those icons, those legends? Those uh, artists? Uh, beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. It, it wasn't just with the band working with them. It was like with the sound system and me touring. Particularly, there was... Um, particularly doing things like uh, in, in Japan, where they started to really get off in that that music and put on some big shows and take over acts. And so I'm mainly talking like the Scatterlights when they reformed yeah. and started to come to Japan and Prince Buster was playing with them over there. They got him doubled up with them. Um, this is like the early nineties, but I'd already been like promoting loads of the Jamaican artists I mentioned earlier yeah. and working with them and having them play down my club. And, you know, it's hard to find somebody that, that wasn't playing there. I mean, look on the wall here. That, this was a great night. Desmond Becker. Oh my goodness. You know, 1984. December. And my club. Wow. It's a shame about the glass there. You can't, yeah, no, we can see, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's a wonderful Desmond Decker. Wow. Yeah, so Laurel Aitken, I had him playing with um, the Potato Five. Right. work. He was spending his last two quid trying to make a soul record in Brixton when, when I was introduced to him. And I said, well, why don't you take up Scar again? I've got, I'm managing a band and recording these tunes with them and they're fantastic. Be perfect. What? No one can play Scar like, like the old days. And I said, come and have a look. And he was like, whoa. And so I said, all right. So I got them in the studio and uh, recorded with him. He gave me a load of cassette tapes with things to listen to. And that was wonderful. But I just love the attitude. And then I'd take him over to, to Japan, touring to DJ, and he'd be singing with other bands over there. Took, took Potato Five there one time with him. And uh, we just just never stopped laughing the whole time. 1984, when, uh, when Desmond first started playing down the club, uh, I'd become good friends with Prince Buster, who was over for the first time since 1967 yeah. to do this reggae sunsplash thing. Uh, 
where you come with the scatterlights uh, to do just three numbers. The scatterlights played three three numbers with him, and uh, I think it was rained off. Not many people turned up. It was far away. Crystal Palace so far away to put the event in a football stadium. I think they expected a lot of people, and it just didn't happen. Um, but just before the show. Uh, a music paper, a music magazine called Black Music International uh, didn't have anyone to interview the Scatterlights of Prince Buster. And it turned out they was they were put up in a hotel literally two streets away from my house. And a friend of mine who was working with a magazine said, look, you know enough about this music. I know you're not a journalist or anything, but can you go and interview them and just write a piece for the, for the uh, forthcoming show? So I went around there, knocked on the door, the door opened, it was very dark in there. It's just a cloud of smoke, marijuana smoke. No, in a tailpipe. And, it, and it, it was like all the original scatterlights in there. Jar Jerry, they were all still alive and they were all there. And uh, well, by Don Drummond, of course. Mm. And uh, Prince Buster was supposed to be there for the interview, but he'd gone out shopping. So I had to come back later when he was there. And then I got back there later when he was there. And we just connected. He came in there. We cooked some food. He introduced me to everybody personally. And uh, and he came around my house, which was two streets up the road there. Saw the records were playing the tunes and met my family and was hanging out. And anyway, when the scatterlights, everyone went back after the show a week later. He changed his ticket and ended up staying another three months. <laughs> and he got me as his sidekick to go around looking to round up all of what happened to the, all the Blue Beat label because his his mentor uh, Emil Chalet, who who started Blue Beat label from Melodist, which originally started in forties, uh, the label an old Jewish um, uh, entrepreneur uh, who was like a war hero and stuff and really interesting character. And Prince Foster loved him, but he just but. Emil Chalet had just passed away, so he was trying to get in touch with the daughter Beverly and find out because Prince Buster was a, was the the major shareholder of the record label. So he wanted to find out where, where all the old stock was and how to revive the label and how to get it all go through it through his lawyer. So I helped to do that for the three months in, in the ni- 1984. And we just ended up becoming best friends. And he just every yeah. time we come back, we're hanging out. And by the late 80s, we didn't really have any plans to. Uh, record or play together but uh, we were he was we were just jamming Stagger Lee one day on the piano a couple of friends and he said oh I know all the words to that so he started singing it and we put a little bounce in it and 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 we just said why don't we just record it so we called up my friend my engineer Damien he booked a studio for the following day <laughs> we got on the phone he called I got some of the potato five horn section I got some most of my well all of my band plus some extra horns from there he got his friend um Satchmo young Satchmo he used to make records in the early 60s yeah. on the carnival label um and he's um who who's a trumpet player but he's also a good percussionist and uh and he could sing like Louis Armstrong which is where he got his nickname from stage name so he came on and trumpet and we we just recorded that night and the day after that we were doing a scar fest a big christmas scar festival show and we turned up there and we decided to he, he decided yeah yeah i'll come with you 
let's do that song on stage. So I said, okay. We played that song and that was it. The rest of our set, we just had to throw it out the window <laughs> and play that song five times in a row. No one that had was, seen uh, it. That was Stack Early? Is that Stack Early, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then I pressed it up a few weeks later. But that, 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 that just smashed it. And it was like, I've never been in such a situation where it was as if, you know, a sea of like 600 skinheads was just like, almost like they were in ecstasy, not only dancing and going crazy, almost bouncing and banging their heads on the ceiling, but they were almost kind of like bowing. I never heard such an audience reaction to anyone in all my born days. It was so yeah. exciting well, that, that night. Very special. That was in 1989. Infectious dude, and, and and what an amazing experience having to work with so many of the wow. of the legends and creators of the music um, mm -hmm. that we all love. So, uh, for my own edification, what became of those Prince Buster records? Who has them now? Who is in charge? Uh, did you find them all? Uh, were they registered, etc., etc.? Well, it's his publishing company is, is Prince Buster Music BMI, and. Uh, it's it's with his family, his wife um, Mola and his sons. I know you you've heard of a guy called Prince Buster Junior, but that, yeah. I think that's Prince Buster's son from a previous marriage, from when he was with Olive Blossom right, back in the sixties. And they don't seem to see eye to eye with the with the, the Muslim family that that he grew up that you know he was with Mola for a long time and he got three like big sons and uh they he brought them up as muslims and i think his his previous marriage wasn't but they didn't connect with that the same way as far as i know anyway i went to his funeral in jamaica and and it was clear that kind of like there was two factions there you know and uh so I don't I don't want to get involved in any family politics or anything like that. But I, I would I would presume that they, Prince Buster's estate is with his wife and that side of the family. Right, right, right. So we uh, must absolutely turn our attention to the incomparable fifteen track release uh, back in nineteen hundred and ninety nine, ninety six, just before the. Um, 97. I know what you're going to say. There we go. Up, up, Island. Yeah. We love it so much. Is that a play on words? But, uh, yeah, well, it was, well, uh, Chris Blackwell, yeah, nice. Yes, yes. I, I, I originally wanted to have every single track uh, put on, um, put on it as a single. And I, I, kind of sculpted it to make... You mean so album and then release on 45? They only made two 45s. And, oh, really? and, and they made the exec executive decision of which four tracks would would be decided to, to be released. on. Uh, but I was really pushing for that. That was their compromise because I insisted like to do like what at least six singles to have nearly every track on. Originally, they wanted only... Uh, 12 tracks and I had to fight to have the full 15 because I wanted 15 and I thought you know you've got space to do that so, so uh, well, 15 on the on the on the CD on the on the, on, and then and you said only two singles only two singles this one yeah. the fishbone toaster right yeah, yeah. All right. But those, those are four tracks that are on the on the 15 track CD well, so yeah. they, as a promotional 
tool, but uh, they could have really put them all out. I think they would have been better off to put them all out. Yeah, so especially now, right? Yeah. But let me rattle off for the benefit of our list, uh, what listening and viewing audience. Prince Bostan is Scatalyze, King of King. Yeah. Uh, Scatalyze, Magic Star. Doreen Schaefer is Scatalyze, can't you see? The toast at this stage, that's my favorite, the toast. So, okay. That's a great one. <laughs> yeah. I, you have to explain to me how that one came about. Fishbone. I, it's too many names to mention. Ernest Ranglin and Joey, Joey. yes. Dan I, Joey, Hep Joey. Kiat, the, one of the biggest so, bands in Southern California at the moment. But take, Ocean, uh, Ocean up, 11. All right, well, we we, we got to yes. continue. Rico in Freetown. Laura Lakin in Freetown. Dr. Ringding and the Senior All-Stars. The Determinations, the Scoflames, and uh, your group, the Trojans. I mean, <laughs> guys. When I had my radio show, I played this so, so much, uh, and I know it's a favorite for juniors. So, so talk about how it came about. Right. Well, Chris Blackwell was coming up to his 40th anniversary of his record label, Island Records, and he started in the in the late 50s, uh, and the first single he ever put out was Laura Aitken, "Boogie in My Bones," yes. with Little Sheila, which stayed in the in the in the charts for 11 weeks. And he had a, he 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 managed to license it to a UK a local label, charge, Jamaica, not United Kingdom, right? Jamaican charge. Yeah, so he came out in Jamaica, Ireland in Jamaica. Mm -hmm. He he put it. He released it with the same people who uh, put out our. It's called R and B label. Was one of the labels I think to do with Federal and Well. And there was a handful of labels around that time. Anyway, so he wanted to get into that business. So he he put out the the Laura Lakin record to start his record label. And I asked him when I saw him, I showed him when I first met him, uh, the Laura Aitken single on Island Records, uh, Boogie My Bones. I said, why does it say WI002? Like it's the second release. What was the first yeah. one? He said, no, the first one was on a, was a different label, wasn't him. And they made him write 002, but that is actually the first ever record that, that he ever produced and put out. So then he he licensed it to Starlight, who were doing a kind of underground label in in the UK for uh, arrival of um, one of the many little rivals of Melodist, where that eventually led to Bluebeat. Anyway, so put out that record over here, and it did well here as well. But that gave him ideas to keep doing it, and he wanted to really do something with this this label. And then it wasn't long till he moved to UK. Um, and he took the label here and established it here and then started licensing records from back home in Jamaica instead of trying to produce them himself. Mm -hmm. He just licensed off Coxon, Duke Reed and various people and, and put out the did his island label here. Now, when it was coming up to the 40th anniversary, he had a concept that he wanted to get all these, uh, pick somebody to produce for him, i.e. me, to produce uh, an album of select, where I got to select all the bands and all the tracks, but he wanted all the tracks to be tracks that had already been released at some point or another on Island Records. So to take a new band or a new artist or an old, anyone of my choice and pick and me pick, wow. uh, select a track for whichever artist to play, as long as it had been- That's amazing creative. Before. A great creative control there, Gaz. So it. I got lucky, but um, I, because of my commitments, it, 97, I had, um, I was just, 
being painted, but doing a portrait by uh, Lucian Freud, a famous uh, painter. And so I was in the middle of doing that. And then I had to program uh, staging Glastonbury. I had, my band was coming up on tour. I've got to do all the dates for the club, book bands for that, promote this, that and the other. And uh, I was like, whoa, I really want to do this project, but I've gone, I, the only way I can make this happen is to do it the way that I'd actually like to have done it anyway, which is to bring it out like a newspaper, the way that they used to record in the 60s, which was to go into the studio with the band already rehearsed up, they know what they're going to do, go in there and do it in one take or two takes or three takes, the whole band at the same time where they're feeding and vibing off each other and so there's a little bit of spillage over there's not going to be any overdubs we're doing this in one go i've got a great engineer so we get the separation you need but at the same time you're going to have people in the room so you get a little bit of spillage into that but that's how you get the warmth extra warmth for the sound you get that valve sound yeah and then we pick the right microphones the right studios so with my engineer's help damien corner alexis corner's son uh he well, we we travelled around the world. We went to we L.A., where we did Fishbone and, and uh, Toasters. Hepcat Ocean Eleven. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Ocean Eleven. Can't get them. And Hepcat were absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. All the bands were fantastic. Uh, I, I would have done an album of each one of them if I had yeah. it possible. And then New York, uh, and at first they were dubious about me getting some old guys in there. So I said, no, no, look, make the most of it. Scatterlights are on fire at the moment. Prince Buster's on fire. Uh, we get them and, you know, take an old Scatterlights, Roland Alfonso. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad we did because all those guys are dead now, every last yes, one of them. Yes, yes. And uh, we had the most amazing time. And he, uh, in the studio, New York was fantastic doing, doing those tracks there. And then we had, um, I went to Germany to do Dr. Ringding, who's like my top favorite uh, reggae guy from, from Germany. He's, he's one in a million. When I first saw him, he was doing Shame and Family in the, uh, and yeah, Shame and yeah. Scandal in the Family, like in the mid eighties when I was touring with the Trojans there. And uh, I thought, well, he's great. And I, I kept up with it. He kept sending me his tunes and he was really great. He did some amazing work with Derek Morgan and he's yes, still he great. Right, mm -hmm. and so 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 I did him one track with him. Went to Japan, did three bands over there. Uh, did Rico and uh, Laura Lakin with London-based bands over here. Ernest Wranglin was in Jamaica. We flew him over to LA uh, for the project, oh, right. and I turned around the whole thing from conception, from being asked to do it, to to the thing being pressed even be bringing artwork to them and everything. Um, three months. Wow. Entire project. So that must have been an astronomical cost. How was the sale? To, to them, uh, to Ireland. It was nothing to do with me, but guess what? It turned out to be not just their 40th anniversary, Chris's uh, Ireland's 40th anniversary. It turned out to be the very last thing that Chris Blackwell ever did whilst he was the head honcho of Island Records. He yeah. sold it during, yeah. whilst I was make, doing, whilst I was making the album, recording it. I, and I, I'm, I'm remembering, yeah, I'm remembering that now, yeah. Wow. He sold it and then and then became like the, 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 the chief executive. But it was the last thing to be released before that. Now, if we'd have done what 
they were trying to get me to do and take six months or longer over it, uh, six months minimum, maybe a year over it, then what would have happened was that would have been compromised by the New York people, universal oh, and it might never have even seen the light of day. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 right. It's so, like coffee. You, you water it down with milk, then you get a recognized. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so but, but, but were you happy with the response? I mean, I, I know so many. Yeah. People well, I, I pushed. I had to fight a little bit along the way. Certain little steps along the way, but by and large, you know, because I had Chris's wholehearted backing. Yeah. It was only dealing with a couple of executives in between and then having to put it through their board and all that to have their, their say. But they basically, I, I had carte blanche to do whatever I wanted, really. And, okay. uh, and and I got it out the way I would have wanted it. So I'm very proud with it. It's one of my greatest achievements. Well, we're, we're going we're gonna to talk off the air. Junior and I have some ideas. We need to get it back. Uh, we need to get repressed and back in the circula uh, circula circulation. So we have some ideas we're going to talk to you about, Gaz. One last thing on that island thing. Uh, my only regrets with it was that uh, they'd given me a camcorder. I mean, now you can just use your phone, right? Which would have been awesome. But in 97, they gave me a camcorder and you couldn't film off your phone in those days. And, and they gave me a really expensive camcorder and, lo and a stack of little mini cassettes to put in there. And they asked me to film and record the whole thing from the inside, the whole project. Mm. And I gave them something like 20, 30 tapes at the end of the project. And I went to give them back the camcorder. They said, you can keep the camcorder, but we just want the tapes. And they were going to make a documentary about the recording of the whole project. And they are sitting somewhere in some office in New York. I don't know where, but one day, if they ever see the light of day, that, there's some incredible stuff. Oh, oh, that's, that's good to know. That's good to know. <laughs> Let's go looking for it. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yes, indeed. Wow. The universe has it. All right. Yeah, so All right. I'm, I'm wondering the sale, how the sale of that album went, because it really and truly has some of the top names in the fraternity. Yeah, well, I hope it did well, but I was never privy to that. Yeah. All I know is that I got my copies and, you know, I got a few that I could give to some but people. It was released on CD, not album, right? No, no. I wanted them to put it on a, on a, on vinyl as well, but they they refused to. Say, and at that time, CDs were all the sales. It was yeah, just before downloads. There was no downloading. It yeah. was all CDs had just taken over, and they didn't want to, as they call it, waste their money doing vinyl as well. Right. Yeah. Little did they know that if they'd have done it, Come back. that would still be selling today. more than the CDs. Yeah. Well, well the well, timing is right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Well, yes. maybe somebody, somebody from from Ireland or or Universal is watching this podcast and the chances are they will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I think the project will right. make catch with this uh, cha ching ching ring. <laughs> so, I want to focus and take you back to the Notting Hill um, Carnival. How long have you been involved with it? Well, I went to the carnival first time in 1976, mm -hmm. and it had been going on for three years, and it's present states. 1973, a guy called uh, Leslie uh, Leslie um, uh, Leslie Palmer, he, good friend of mine, he, he's, he noticed that the carnival had been going for, for several years. Uh, it was a bit of steel pan, Russell Henderson playing the pan, and the, it was like mainly kind of, mainly white people dressing in fancy dress, I'm doing a little procession down Portobello Market Road. 
and uh, and it, it was just in a little mini park and stuff. And they spread out down Tavistock Road, down by the flyover. And but it was pretty, my it was pretty small. And you get you know you get a few Jamaicans standing on the side, sort of looking at it, saying you know it could be so much better, you know. And Leslie's in 1973 invited. He's from Trinidad. He invited five proper full-on big mass parade bands, full-on full steel bands with floats and all the costumes. And he got three sound systems from Jamaica, mm. local sound systems. He put a massive sound system in the street. And all of a sudden, tens of thousands of people turned up. The following year, 1974, it tripled, quadrupled. In 75, there was so many people there. There was like half a million people there. And they, they that they were so worried the authorities said they knew 76 could be a million people there, which they were. And so they brought down like 10, 20,000 police officers to line the streets and kind of, but in 76, those, those police were, um, they were mainly from the country, from out of town. And most of them had never seen a black person and never seen anyone kind of walking down the street, smoking a spliff before. And they, they kind of look, taken the, the piss out of what people are wearing and stuff and all the different styles and kind of like, there was every kind of people there, but so, you've never seen so many black people in all your life. And uh, it was, so sooner or later, because of the way the, 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 the atmosphere between the general public, particularly the youth and particularly the black youth and the, the behavior of the police and, elements of corruption but huge amount of endemic racism within the force and it had to kick off and um there it started i was in in at the junction by the flyover of, of cambridge gardens Ackland road and portobello road and uh, just where the flyover is and and i thought what's all that commotion and you saw like uh all the crowd coming towards us. So I ducked into the doorway. I was standing right next to Char Shaka's sound system. And I ducked in the doorway. So a surge of people came there. So what's going on? And someone said, oh, the police are chasing everyone. There's like everyone being chased by the police. And, then, and, uh, and the next thing you know, the wave went back out that way. And everyone's kind of running that way. And they started, the people started chasing the police. So the police are having to like go into gardens and, and take dustbin lids to protect themselves because everyone was just throwing bottles and it was like a medieval war going on, like the Battle of Agincourt, where like you look in the sky and it's just like raining with missiles aiming towards the police. And uh, anyway, that, that was uh, the beginning of like the, 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 the biggest riots the country had ever seen. Uh, and that riot, kind of resurfaced again and again for a few more years and you, you get very little any trouble anymore. But um, in 1976, it really all kicked off and ignited a huge, huge riot. Mm -hmm. And I was there then and I, up until the riot, I thought it was the best party I'd ever been to in my entire life. And then with the excitement of all the riots and the looting and all the rest of it, and I was kind of stuck there. I had to go and stay at friends and dangling out my legs out the window, watching as people are burning cars and everything. And and uh, I just thought, 
wow, this is incredible. And I never missed a carnival since. <laughs> and yeah, my band was going early 82. I got a sound system going. I got my first band playing there. So from 1982, I've uh, I've had a, like a, a, a presence there with sound system and bands and, and been doing that ever since. How, how many people attend it nowadays? Uh, you get a million, um, a minimum of a million a day. In a square mile or so, you know, a split square couple of miles, two, three miles. You know, I, I think LKJ, Linton Kwesi Johnson, that's when I discovered his poetry. He had a a, a, a live album uh, speaking about um, the Nothing He Carnival. You know, I've read about it extensively. As a matter of fact, I, I was over there the year of, but then actually discovered Linton on my own when I went to record store and saw him. He has, is the album with him on a microphone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, with Dread Beat and Blood is not a yes, big one. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. Yeah, he was very popular back in the day in the early 80s. He was, yeah, he was right. pretty significant. Yeah. Yeah, but a lot of people were in, uh, inspired by that. Uh, that band, The Clash, you, you might, might have heard of them. Yeah, very top English rock band, The right, Clash. Right, and they kept, they right. at the beginning of punk and everything. They were inspired. They were all yes. at the carnival there because they, they were all living around there too. So right, they got caught right. up in it as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a big influence in their band and their their first records. So uh, um, yeah, they made they that 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 was a big part of their their forming and um, foundation. In, a in lot of people were influenced by that. But I'm so, I'm glad that the authorities didn't completely just say no to it. I think they needed it. They just needed to find a way to kind of make it safer. And and because of what happened then. A lot, a lot of a lot was done to sort of break down the racialism within the, uh, the uh, like the police and stuff, and, and a lot of work's been done, and and it's really changed a lot. I mean, I, I, I can imagine just to, you have a much worse problem with racism in the states I've noticed than we do here now, because it's so well integrated here, but it's on a much smaller scale. This country, and it is so integrated, and there's still. An element of endemic racism, but nothing oh. like the extent that it was. I mean, by and large, you won't even notice it, you know. Yeah. So it's very, very rare that you notice anything like that. I, I never see it in London. Right. Yes. Um. We we talked about this. Um. Their name came up when we were talking about uh, Sky Island comp uh, album. Um. Jump with Joey. We we we've known Joey for a long time. We. We, we, as well as Willie, who we just interviewed on our drummer uh, roll calls uh, panel. Um, and during both interviews, both of Willie and Joey talk about you and your brother, Jason. Talk uh -huh. about uh, talk about meeting uh, uh, Joey and Willie back in the day and what and, and just maybe a highlight of, of, of Jump with Joey. Yeah, well, I met them when, because they were good friends of Jason when he lived in LA for seven years. Right. I mean, they're the same generation as Fishbone and that. Yes, and they uh, they were kind of young, good-looking guys on the scene doing something different. And Jason turned them on to well, I think he was he helped turn them on to Scar. But I yeah. mean, you need to ask Willie and no, Willie, Willie, Willie actually said he did. Yes, we spoke to Willie recently. Yeah, because when Jason come back to holidays and you see what we're doing in Ken Market and then the club mm. and then the, the, the whole revival of, uh, you know, two-tone and stuff like that. So I think he was there at that time in, in L.A. So he was like, you know, when they got their Jump With Joey band up and running and first came to the U.K., 
of course, you know, we're all, they're all staying locally and hanging, we're all hanging out, making friends and we're playing around here and I like their music and became good friends. They're still very close with Jason, you know, Jason stays with Willie and, you know, they always hang out. Yeah. And when I go to LA, I always make sure I see them. Yeah. And you, and speaking of which, you come out here to visit your, your, your father every once in a while, right? Yeah, yeah. My dad emigrated there, 68, 69, bought a house there in, in uh, Laurel Canyon, overlooking oh. Hollywood. Yeah. And so when we were little, we used to go down there every year, stay there every year, then I went less and less. But then these days I go more and more because he's really getting old now. He just turned 90 in November. Oh, uh, the whole family went over. I was the only one who didn't get over there. Sadly, I can, uh, I, I was, uh, that's another story. Finances wouldn't permit, but I'll get over there soon. We'll spread the load anyway and we'll hang out. Yeah, but yeah, he's, he's, he's living at home. He's finally retired a year and a half ago. So he had a very good... Uh, You're not kidding. Uh, very good innings. Right. <laughs> So if we could uh, shift focus for a bit, uh, what other music uh, producing would you like to touch on that you have not covered? As, as we as we as we near the end of our conversation here, which could go on and on and on. Oh well, we can continue it next time we come to over yeah, to we love it over, over a cool beer and one of your wonderful yeah. nights. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, for the future, really, I'm more interested in just kind of ticking along and I need to be I'm at that stage in my life where I really start need to kind of archive archive everything and then look at kind of what I haven't put out that I've already recorded and go through some you know go through the archives and just tidy everything up because everything's all a bit of a kind of a mess mm. of stuff in that corner over here and everything's all mixed up so I need to kind of compartmentalize everything right. and do that and I think one thing I'm due to, we're, the Trojans are overdue uh, another record. We need to use a lot of the material that we haven't recorded yet. Oh, there's, there's a cracker. Very proud of that one. <laughs> uh, there's a, there's a, we've, we've got so many great musicians that have come through the ranks over the years. As the last album we did in the studio, Smash, Smash It, was uh, with, we had... Tan Tan on trumpet. Now he's he's in his early nineties now, and he's now yes. in a, a care home, so he's not able to perform in because he can't walk. Otherwise, he'd be still at home. But so uh, he did his last two shows with us about uh, a year or two ago, and then it just his family just says, "Look, please, you know, he he can't do it anymore." You know, and uh, is there uh, any uh, relationship what? between uh, the Trojans and the Trojan record label? No, and uh, I put out a couple of compilations with them uh, right. for, for old scar music for authentic sixties recordings. Right. I've worked with them before, but there's but, uh, but there's no relationship. The label is no, 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 independent. The reason I called the reason I called the band the Trojans was because there was no one doing that kind of music at the time, mm. and I had my first band, the Rebel Blues Rockers, sounded like too much a nod towards kind of like we did a kind of street kind of punky version of. Of rock R and B rock and roll type thing it was very raunchy with a bit of scar. But right. then when I start the Trojans, I want to go like ninety percent at least scar, and uh, and unrelated stuff. So I thought there was no one using a record label at the time. The record label had died a death years before, 
<laughs> there was only a few old singles about. That label has died multiple times. I was there 74, they died. Yeah, yeah. And Booth was uh, number one on the UK charts, Everything I Own. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was a, pretty much their last hit. And then, and then no one had heard and of it. And they resurfaced multiple times after, right? Yeah, so, so well, so at least 10 years or more had gone by. So a whole generation had never heard of Trojan. And yeah, right. um, I had a pretty, you know, fairly young band at the time. And we just want to hit the audience that was around then, the youth that were around then, and just give a nod to that. But one of the main reasons is that when I was at school, one of my first black mates there, a guy called Danai, went on to be quite a, a good singer, and known singer in London at the time. In the late 70s, he had a hit with Island Records called Monkey No Chop Banana. Uh, it's kind of soul record. He was into reggae and soul, but he ended end up being more with soul. But anyway, Danai, when we were at school, uh, he was a fan of Jimi Hendrix. Like, I was dead keen on that too. And we, we had that in common, as well as reggae and everything. And and he, he typical Jamaican, used to call somebody who he thought was like a right good fellow, a right good chap, the, the adage, you're a real Trojan, you're a true Trojan. And that came through a, the Jamaican expression to call someone that, like a jolly good fellow was a real Trojan, call him a Trojan, came back from the British public school days of the 19th century, late 1800s. People, one thing that all the students had to learn was the, the earliest written book in Europe, <coughs> Homer's epic uh, stories of the the fall of Troy and about the Trojans and the Iliad and and so um, Achilles and all and all of that. So a nickname for people in Victorian England, if you were a jolly good fellow, they'd call you a right regular Trojan, <laughs> and that pervaded and kind of came back through the colonies and came back to Ontis later and a nickname right. for a, a good a good fellow was a Trojan. So wasn't it that Duke Reed uh, uh, also uh, named his label? Yeah, see, Jamaica, all Jamaicans at that time would have known that if you're calling someone a good fellow, or like a wise guy, or real good, good chap, a good fellow would be, another name for it would be a Trojan. But he had a Chevrolet truck, the, the model was a Trojan. And so when he started his sound system, when he left the police force and he won all that money on the sweepstake and built the biggest liquor store Jamaica had ever seen and started sound system and got involved in that, built a big sound system, he'd take his sound system on the back of his Chevrolet Trojan around the place and he named his, his sound system Tro Duke Reed the Trojan. Mm -hmm. And when his first record ever came out, Penny Real on 78 on the Calypso label, a mentor record, Calypso... Uh, uh, Penny Real, it was on, he called the late record label Trojan. I've got the original 78. Wow. And it's Trojan 001. And it came and out in the mid-50s. And it's Penny Real. From the from England to the colony and from the colony Jamaica back to England. Yeah, so Trojans, we call in the band the Trojans means like we're calling ourselves the Goodfellas <laughs> or a nickname for that, you know. But also with a not with a reference to the Jamaican. Uh, both the reggae and, and all of that. And so I heard that uh, Duke Reed's money came from his wife, Miss Reed. Now you, you uh, I, I have not read it anywhere, but no, he won the sweepstakes. Won... Oh, but they reckon, they reckon he, he uh, Prince Buster reckoned that it was corruption. 
he reckoned that he, he cheated to win it. But, you know, I mean, maybe maybe he didn't. But he, he became a millionaire overnight and left the police force right. and the biggest sound system that, uh, and, and the biggest um, liquor store. Yeah. Started, yeah. And started recording. Wow. Man, I used to think that record store is uh, that record that 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 uh, studio was heaven. Yeah, well, it so was it was a big thing in the history of Jamaica. Really? I, I guess the liquor used to penetrate <laughs> the floor. Master done. They say the guy never went anywhere without his gun. Right. He had a how about two, man with him as well. How about two guns? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, we really, really, uh, your wealth of knowledge and, and, and your contribution to the music, um, singer, musician, producer, label operator, DJ, promoter. I mean, that just and that and that that doesn't even describe everything, but. Um, and he's yeah. only wearing one hat. Eh? He's wearing one hat, and you wear and you wear the best hats. Let me tell you, and you wear it well. I got this one from the other night. We did a we did a Japanese theme night with uh, some friends. I mean, you're still shopping. A local pub, and I've I've got this this band this bandana still on totally there. Totally unique. I love it. It means we must win. It's Japanese thing. We must win. The students there wear it when they're taking their exams. Nice. nice. Still a student. Yes. So, any closing thoughts? Well. I would like to say that um, being the, the great times I have in LA and and seeing what a magnificent scene you have over there and how you, and I've wanted to go there for years and I would really love to come over when uh, Eric Monty Morris is, is playing there because he's one of the only legends from that era. Well, going you haven't, seen, you haven't seen. seen him, right? I've never seen him. I'm, I'm going to make an intelligent guess you haven't seen him. No, I haven't seen him. All I right, well, him. we're going to make it happen. Uh, Prince Bus were always spoke so highly of him, and they, they were yeah. part of that original scene back in the day. Right, he did give Prince Bus a couple of hits. Prince Bus's first recording when Derek Morgan took him with Duke Reed money. It's yeah. a lot of <laughs> uh, we, we, I want to go to a cool bar with you guys. And, right. right. and I, I love it. And, and when I'm over in London this summer, I'm going to hit you up too. Yes. Of course, man. Well, you know, I'll get the red carpet uh, brushed up, <laughs> you know, shampoo washed, and uh, I'm ready for you. And 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 mark my word, we're going to talk off the air about uh, about Scott Island. We, we we do have some ideas. So, uh, yeah. no kidding, you know, yeah. very serious. Seriously, ideas. So. It's going to benefit all of us. Yes, but and the music fraternity, indeed, especially, indeed. And Gaz, yeah. thank you again, and, and and give thanks to Ruby for helping with this as well. I will do. I will yes. do. And thanks to everyone for your ongoing support. And please subscribe to this podcast series, and of course our YouTube channel and follow us at History of, uh, History of Eleskia on Instagram and join our Facebook group. And follow this gentleman at Junior Francis. And Gaz, you are also on social media, uh, yes. both as, as Gaz Mail as well as the Trojans, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Trojans Band Official on Instagram or uh, Gaz's Rocky Blues Club, for one word. Uh, right. you know, Anything sign. else? And and Gazmail, not Gazmail Eleven. I got hacked, and somebody's added Eleven to it, so I don't use that at all. So it's just at Gazmail or at uh, the Trojans Band official, which is very re relatively new, which I need to put some, invest some time in. But Gaz Rockin' Blues Club, you can really keep up to date with all of my activities. 
Right. It. And uh, uh, this series is produced by Rockery Radio at Rockery underscore radio. And one last question. Do you have any unreleased material? Yeah, loads, loads. That's why oh, that's why I'm going through all the archives at the moment, yeah. trying to kind of work out what what well, I can do. With what I've got. We, we need to talk with with you know with with, with our vinyl selling uh, the way it is now. We really need to talk. I think you're sitting on a gold mine. Yeah, yeah, and even just reissuing stuff is is a, is a good idea. You know? That's yeah. exactly what I mean. Right, a gold mine. Well, Gaz, again, much love and respect to you, Junior. Thank you as always, yes. and we appreciate everyone's ongoing support, whether you watch us or listen to this uh, series. Many thanks, and please get out and support live music. Until next time, we'll see you. Peace. Take care. Thank you so right. much. Absolutely. Cheers. Take care. Bye -bye. Later.